now to God's men. Forgot to bring this with me. Sorry. So I had a strange experience a month or so ago. I first need to say that I am a pretty big Bruce Springsteen fan. I didn't think you'd be alone in that. <laughs> Any other Bruce Springsteen fans in the house? <laughs> so it started when I was a young, impressionable kid, when a family friend who was also my little league soccer and basketball coach, which you had to be a friend of the family to watch me be bad at sports that many times, that many seasons in a row, first introduced me to Bruce. But really it was in high school when I became all in. My dad had born in the USA on record, and I found an old record player in our uh, storage room, and I would play the thing on repeat. Sidebar, that was the only time in high school that I thought my dad was cool. Now, I wrote that sentence weeks ago, not knowing that my dad would be here in worship today. <laughs> but I figured it was such a great coincidence that I had to go with what I'd written. Sorry, Dad, I love you. A friend of mine uh, burned me a CD of Bruce's hits when I was in high school, and I listened to it nonstop. I have a couple favorites, one of which is The River, which is a devastating song about the death of youth and innocence. I don't know what it was that drew me to Bruce. I grew up in a middle-class family in West Springfield, so it's not like his songs spoke to my experience of the world. But he was a storyteller, and all of his songs felt real, felt like they were born out of someone's life in a way that was so beautiful. I can picture running into someone from my high school whom I'd admired and wanted to be because he was a good baseball player, only to discover that in his life now, he views that his best days are behind him. Now, another sidebar. The only Bruce song that's much beloved that I really can't listen to is perhaps his best, Born to Run. My college roommate of four years was also a big Bruce fan, and he had Bruce's greatest hits CD in his CD player alarm clock. And every morning when he woke up, he would wake up to the first 30 seconds of Born to Run. We couldn't figure out how to get the thing to play any other song, like literally any other song, which, I mean, just put in another CD, but that would have been a lot of work. Anyways, which means I woke up every morning to the first 30 seconds of Born to Run for four years. So I cannot now listen to at all the first 30 seconds of Born to Run. Anyways, the other favorite of Bruce's for me is the song Atlantic City. Well, now everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Hmm, Easter? Anyways, put your makeup on, fix your hair up pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. It's about someone who is down on his luck but hopes to find success, prosperity, and happiness one day. It's about a guy with a dream who doesn't see any way that he can get there. His hope leads him to Atlantic City. Maybe to church, but Atlantic City, that's fine. At the end of the song, he knows that his life is going to a dark place. But he keeps his hope and his love for the one to whom he's singing. And maybe those, maybe that, will be just enough to pull him through. I tell you about Bruce Springsteen because a month or so ago I was in a restaurant and I heard a version of Atlantic City, come on, the, the overhead sounds, that was clearly not Bruce Springsteen. I pointed out uh, this song to a friend who said it was the band's version of the song. Not knowing much about the band, I asked some questions and learned the band was real big back in the 60s or 70s. 
So I assumed that Atlantic City was initially written by the band. I don't know a lot about music for someone who wrote up a sermon series about music. The band's version of the song is much faster, much cheerier than Bruce's. Bruce's version has some grit to it. It's stripped down and slowed down. There's a faint sense of hope that runs through Bruce's version, but you never lose sight of the struggle. When the band speeds it up, hits some higher notes and some more major chords, the sense we get is more naive optimism than lived in and earned hope. After first hearing the band song, I assumed the band sang it first and Bruce made his version in the Bruce way. It turns out, after doing some Googling, that Bruce sang it first, and the band covered it nearly a decade later. For my money, give me the Bruce version. Why did I tell you all of this? Songs are powerful in how different renditions can change how we view them. Songs are powerful in how they hit us at different times in our lives. Songs are powerful in how the context in which they're sung... Did I get my typo? I, I know how to make they are into a contraction. The manner in which they are sung, twice, and the context in which we hear them can drastically alter the meaning of the words which the singer is singing. There's a song in the musical Hamilton called Dear Theodosia. Dear Theodosia is sung by Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton right after America has won the war for independence. These two founding fathers are singing to their recently born children about the pure, unbridled hope they have for the country they are going to create to leave to their children. They sing, you will come of age with our young nation. We'll bleed and fight for you. We'll make it right for you. If we lay a strong enough foundation, we'll pass it on to you. We'll give the world to you, and you'll blow us all away. Someday, someday. This song expresses the love they have for their children and the hope they have for both the world and the next generation and the reasons why they will give their time, their lives, their everything to the creation of this country. The song is so full of hope, sung by people who know that greatness and endless possibility lay in front of them and their children. It's a song for idealists who believe that through hard work and good intentions we can create a right, just, and fair society. So after Hamilton becomes a smash hit, a number of popular bands and artists got together to cover and in some cases totally reimagine certain songs from the musical. The album was called The Hamilton Mixtape. The final song on the album was a version of Dear Theodosia performed by Chance the Rapper. And what Chance does with this is simply beautiful. Chance takes this song, which is part victory song and part young men poised to change the world, and he brings it into 2018. Because by now, we know that these men gave the world a wonderful country that would also be subject to the systemic hurts and pains our fallen world brings. Chance is a black man singing a song of founding fathers about the just country they would create when both men died while Africans were still enslaved in this country. So Chance slows the song down and he puts it in a minor key. And there are moments when the note progression suggests one thing and then he changes and goes backward. And he takes this song about unbridled optimism and infuses a real sense of not yet into it. There's a sadness to this song, as if the singers know that not only will their task prove imperfect, 
but that even questions whether their sacrifice was worth it. And yet, this sense of hope still remains. The listener is left with this longing for the vision of our founders to be realized fully. Having known the Hamilton version pretty well, when I listened to Chance's version for the first time, I sat at my kitchen table with my mouth wide open at the sheer power and dark beauty of the song. Now, again, why am I talking about any of this? Can we get to the Bible, please? If you heard, some of Chance, if you heard Chance's version of that song, you may not like it. You might, but you might not. You might be confused by it. The power, the beauty, the depth of that song, what had me listen to that song over and over and over was how it related to the original. We are looking this summer at the Psalms and talking about the power that songs have. Songs have power in and of themselves. But sometimes songs have power in the ways that we use them and the ways that they are recognized and their meanings changed through reimagination. This morning, we are going to look at a psalm that has power in and of itself, but has its meaning completely changed through the way it is reimagined and taken up into the story of Jesus and the grand story of salvation. We are going to look this morning at Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? so far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted ones. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. <clears throat> 
Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring a people yet unborn, he has done it. If you were to read this in your Bible, you'll see that the psalm has a heading. To the choir master, to the tune of Doe of the Morning, a psalm of David. I want to start there because there are two observations right from the heading that puts this psalm in a context. The first is that it's set to a tune. A reminder, if we needed one, that this was a song. This was meant to be sung. This was not just meant to give voice to one person's pain, but rather it was meant to resonate with all who suffer. The second is that it was to the choir master, which means it was meant for worship. It was meant to be sung by God's people in worship. These two observations will frame our initial discussion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. This is how an ancient worship song begins. If we would have begun a song this way this morning, many of you, I'm sure, would have felt maybe that that was too strong and didn't quite reflect how you felt coming to worship this morning. Many times we come to worship feeling okay or better. I'd say most of the time. Most of the time we don't come feeling God-forsaken. But I'll tell you what. There have been some Sundays that I have come to church feeling God-forsaken. There are some Sundays I come to church wanting to cry out, Why are you so far from me, God? There are some Sundays that I have come to church having found no rest. Though admittedly that might be due to the one-and-a-half-year-old and less about spiritual darkness. But anyways... Now, it's not a regular thing, but if I'm honest, there have been times in my life when I've come to church like that. I wonder if you have too. Or maybe there are periods in your life when you have felt that you didn't think you could come to church. Maybe you thought you couldn't come to church unless you felt God close to you. Maybe you distance yourself from a faith community because hurts, pains, doubts, sadness, or apathy made it feel like God was far from you. And if God is far from you, you're not worthy, you're not welcome in church. And yet God gives us this psalm, placed in Holy Scripture as a worship song to remind us that it's not just our happy, not just our joy, not just our praise that we should bring to God. This psalm tells us precisely that it is our hurts, it is our pains, it is our longings, it is our desperation that we should bring to God. Wherever we are, however we are, God seeks to meet us there in prayer, in worship, and in song. The song almost plays out the way things happen when we bring to church, uh, when we come to church, bringing our lowest moments our, in our moments of greatest pain. The speaker says that he feels God forsaken and calls upon God to listen to him and deliver him. Then the voice of faith comes in. 
and says that God has been helpful in ages past. God was faithful to our ancestors. God delivered them. They trusted you and were not played for fools. But then that hurt voice comes back. The voice of the one in pain comes back almost as if to say, but you don't understand what I'm going through. I feel like a worm. My enemies are always around me and they're constantly mocking me. Trouble feels nearer to me than you, God. And then we get this vivid imagery that is simply devastating. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tear their prey open their mouths and open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. I can feel that. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Vivid. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. The first half of this psalm is brutal and unrelenting. And it speaks to how we can feel sometimes. And it's in the context of worship, the context of coming before God, but then the second half of the psalm shows why we should bring our hurts and pains, our wounds and sadness, our God-forsakenness to God in worship. And that's because of what comes next in the psalm. Because when we come to church with our pains and our hurts, when we bring them to God, we can hear the church speak faith into our lives. We can hear the word of God remind us of who God is, who God has been, and who God will be for us. The second half of this psalm is a praise song about God's faithfulness unto Israel, God's faithfulness unto the world, and in turn, God's faithfulness unto those who feel God forsaken. When you come to church feeling like God and the world are against you and hear praise songs, it is not meant to troll you. It is not meant to mock a moment of genuine pain. It's meant to remind you of the character of the God who is in this world and in your life. This psalm sees the one in pain declare the goodness of God. And not a trite goodness that ignores the real pain of this world, but a firm belief that the goodness of God can overcome the hardships of this world. And this is where I want to segue into context. I spent an unseemly amount of time at the beginning of this sermon talking about songs and context and how covers and the way songs are performed can change the meaning of songs and Bruce Springsteen and Chance the Rapper. You remember that. You were wondering why. Here's why. If this psalm sounds familiar to you, it's because the first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are words that Jesus says from the cross. Jesus utters these lines as he himself is feeling God forsaken. He utters lines from a psalm that later talks about people mocking, hurting, that talks about people casting lots for clothing, that talks about hands and feet being pierced. As he has been beaten and mocked and having people cast lots for his clothing and his hands and feet pierced. 
And when Jesus recites this psalm from the cross, its meaning is transformed. This psalm opens with pain, opens with brokenness, and then proclaims that God will not stand idly by in the face of pain and brokenness. When these words are uttered by Jesus on the cross, it not only expresses faith that God will overcome the sufferings of Jesus, but it reframes all suffering within the context of what happened to Jesus on the cross and afterward. When Jesus recites this psalm from the cross, and when we read this psalm in light of Jesus reciting this psalm from the cross, the hope and the faith at the end of the psalm are never, ever again simply pie in the sky. They aren't naivete. They aren't delusion or denial. Rather, the voice of hope, the voice of faith, the lyrics about the faithfulness of God said at the end of the psalm remind us that Sunday comes even after the darkest Friday. The cross leads to the empty tomb. The God we worship is a God who does his best work in a graveyard. The God-forsaken speaker of this psalm is no longer a worm, no longer a miserable, miserable person, no longer one whom time, society, and fate forgot. Instead, when we say this psalm, in the moments of our deepest pain and brokenness, we say it as people who know that even the darkest night will end and the sun will rise. We say it as Easter people. We say it as people who know, not just believe, who know that our God will turn suffering into joy. Many times the power in songs is the context in which they are sung and the way that they are sung. Jesus singing this song from the cross reminds us, dare I say, preaches to us that our greatest moments of God-forsakenness are a preamble to God's greatest miracles. Let us pray.